The Terrifying Lies Podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Greetings, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Terrifying Lies Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Nibo. A few years ago, I designed a board game called Chops, a wild, humorous rock and roll extravaganza where players get to assemble bands, play gigs for cash, and live out their rock star dreams. It's like a mad blend of Spinal Tap and Adventure Time, a game as hilarious as it is epic. You can pick up a copy of Chops at Amazon, by the way. But here's the twist. I went the extra mile as part of creating Chops. I didn't just design game mechanics. I built an entire world around it. I crafted detailed bios for every musician and venue in the game. Ultimately, I found myself with a world rich enough to spawn countless short stories and perhaps even a few novels. I dove in and put down a few rock and roll yarns. One of my favorite subjects in the heart of this musical universe is an all-female band called the Punk Cats. These fierce rockers are a force to be reckoned with. I have a soft spot for them, even though they're purely fictional. One member stands out, the bass player, Portia Gain, an anti-institutional female rocker with a captivating story that practically wrote itself. Today, I'm thrilled to share with you Part 1 of Portia Gaines' origin story, The Beat Farmer. That's B-E-A-T Farmer, not B-E-E-T Farmer. Along the way, I'll sprinkle in the original bios of the other Punk Cat members. Actually, let's go a little further with this. I plan to feature a few Chops-related stories during this season of the Terrifying Lies podcast. For every story related to Chops, I will give away a game to a random person from my email list. I'll announce the winners at the end of every month and ship out the games. You can sign up for the email list by visiting craignibo.com and putting your name and email address in the fields near the top of the podcast page. I will also put a giveaway link in the description of this podcast. Good luck. For today, get ready to dive into a world where rock and roll reign supreme. I promise you a wild ride. And now for the Beat Farmer, part one of two, written and performed by me, Craig Nibo. The long shadows cast by early light smeared the shaded likeness of a weighty Ford 8-end tractor and its rider across the newly rutted field. Patricia guided the tractor toward the end of the road that stretched on for 120 acres, dragging a disc plow behind her, leaving a wake of turned dirt ready for seed. As she neared the end of the row, she cranked the wheel, trying to get around before hitting the irrigation ditch. She didn't feel like fighting the tractor's tendency to engage two gears at once, but she had to shift into reverse. After knocking the wheel full to the left, leaning to the side out of useless desperation, and even letting a few choice farmer words slip, she resolved that she wasn't going to make the turn. She dropped the tractor into neutral, 
took a moment to premeditate the perfect shifting motion, then went for reverse. When she let up the clutch, the transmission moaned and the tractor remained at a dead stop. Before the machinery had a chance to damage any of its expensive gears, she shut down the motor. The metal beast beneath her idled to a coughing stop. Patricia leaned forward until her forehead rested on the wheel. Her already long day had just gotten longer. She sat up and looked across the unplanted beet field. She'd finished about half of the day's plowing, but there was plenty more work to do that day before the sun went down. Why was she all alone out in the field, expected to get all of the plowing and planting done? She hadn't seen her father that day. had risen even before her and gotten to work on his secret project. Patricia looked in another direction at the farm's collection of produce storage units. There it was, Silo 13. Parked outside the tall structure, she spotted her father's beat-to-oblivion 92F-150 pickup. Had he even come home last night? She thought to herself as she looked at the truck. Sightings of her father had become rare these days. He had made it clear that his work in Silo 13 was paramount, and even more clear that neither Patricia nor her mother were permitted into the storage unit. Patricia dismounted the 8 n and kicked one of its tires. She walked to the front of the beast. She would have to rotate the engine in reverse manually before she could slide the shift collars back into their neutral position. With both hands, she grabbed the fan belt and pulled with all of her might. Not much heft in her 15-year-old body. The engine wouldn't budge. After a few more failed attempts, Patricia decided that she would have to head back to the farmhouse for tools to rotate the flywheel. She kicked the tire again and began her long walk home. Selena rules. Drums. Member of the Punk Cats. Three things about Selena worried her parents when she was a little girl. One, she liked to start fires. Two, she went to bed until she was 15 years old. Three, she was cruel to animals. It wasn't until Selena was sent away to live with her distant uncle, Arnold Pachetic, that she began to speak in coherent multi-sentences. Pachetic came from a long line of pork pie hat-wearing bluesmen seated in the Louisiana Delta. Selena's life changed one day when Pachetic found her in a barn outbuilding beating the tar out of a collection of rusted-out farm tools with a pair of crescent wrenches. He took the wrenches from her hands and replaced them with a pair of sticks. He replaced the farm tools with a drum kit, and the rest is history. The growl of a big engine caught her attention as she walked the furrows home. She looked up at the road and spotted a gray Porsche Boxster headed the same direction as she. Patricia swore to herself and hurried her pace. She knew that car. She couldn't let her mother face its driver by herself. She knew her father wouldn't come to her mother's rescue. It was up to Patricia. She leaned into a dead run toward the farmhouse. Patricia reached the back of the house almost out of breath. She leaned against the wall to calm down. After catching her breath, she ducked through a long, neglected grape arbor that acted as a portal to the front yard. She stopped when she heard voices coming from the porch. She parted some of the dead vegetation so she could see the front of the house. Adrian Brophy stood on the porch, dressed in an appropriate gray shark skin suit. Too much shine in such a shoot for a man of his middle age, Patricia thought. Patricia had always seen Mr. Brophy as a man with an over-romanticized opinion of himself. His fast car and Tarantino-esque movie hitman wardrobe being his most obvious tells. The truth was, Mr. Brophy's more than ample belly hung several inches over his belt. He usually smelled like black licorice. The bank has shown more than its share of patience, Mr. Brophy said. We're all for the common man, and farm loans are usually more than safe. 
My institution can't afford the losses that we're incurring on your husband's business. The bank's losses? Patricia's mother said, working hard to keep her sobs at bay. Patricia hated when her mother cried. She came from strong stock. It took almost a force of nature to crack her, but Patricia could see the beginnings of wells forming in her mother's eyes. What about our losses? Your losses are just that. Your losses. You're not our only customer. We give out many farm loans year after year and the returns come in on a timely basis. Your loan spans over two seasons now and we haven't seen a payment in eight months. Two seasons ago. That's when Patricia's father began his work in Silo 13. Patricia glanced in the direction of the approaching storage outbuildings and sneered. Mr. Brophy went on. What happened, Tina? He turned and looked out into the fields, squinting against the sun. You used to have enough workers to get the job done. Wendell is a good farmer. The bank has trusted him for better than 20 years. He's always brought in the crop and always paid on time. I can't help but wonder where the money's gone. I can't help but wonder where Wendell has gone. I haven't seen him in months. Years even, it seems. Who's running the farm? That skinny girl of yours? Patricia gripped down hard on two of the arbor cage supports. She felt a splinter pierce her hand. She didn't care. She poured her energy into hatred for Mr. Brophy and his bank. Some of that hate washed over the side and spilled onto her father, staining his robes of stewardship. I can get a job, Tina said, still struggling to keep back the tears. Mr. Brophy chuckled. <laughs> a job? Where? At Philo's Beanery Roadhouse? No amount of bussing trays and serving drinks is going to carry the payments on a quarter of a million dollar loan. Patricia's mother couldn't hold on for another moment. The tears came, and with them, a mouse-like whimper that caused Patricia's heart to thicken its beat. If it makes any difference, I'm not blaming you for any of this, Mr. Brophy said. People change, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. Your husband, Wendell, he's changed. Maybe you're too close to the situation to see the signs, but he's different these days. What are you implying? Patricia's mother said in a cool tone. I'm not implying anything. Uh, well, maybe I am. Maybe it's time to take stock of your situation. Maybe it's time to evaluate where you are and weigh it against where you want to be. That's quite enough, Trisha's mother said. Okay, fine. I get it. I do. You're a strong woman. I'd be remiss not to say that I appreciate that about you. There are some hard facts that you have to face. Wendell's delinquency on his debt has forced the bank's hand. On my next visit, I'll be accompanied by an appraiser. He's going to evaluate the value of the farm. Tina issued a mousy chirp. Your options have run out. All that's left is business. Get off my farm, Tina said. I'm leaving. Mr. Brophy backed off a pair of steps. But I will be back. I will send notification before the appraiser arrives. I hope this isn't going to be a problem, Tina. I don't want to involve the authorities. You get in that midlife crisis luxury liner of yours and drive away. Do you hear me? Mr. Brophy stood there, blinking, his hands raised in an open gesture. Get off my farm, Tina shouted. Mr. Brophy backed off the porch in such a rush that he nearly went hiney over Hetty down the concrete stairs. He took a moment to salvage what was left of his dignity, then pointed at Tina. I'll be back. There's nothing you can do to stop this. Tina narrowed her eyes and stared at Mr. Brophy. He backed away a handful of steps, then turned and walked to his Porsche. 
Patricia walked out from underneath the grape arbor as he slammed his Porsche door, fired up the engine, and crunched away on the long dirt road that led to the two-lane farm highway. She watched the Boxster move until it was nearly out of sight and walked into the house. Brittany Trees, keyboards, member of the Punk Cats. Part punk rocker, part motivational speaker, Brittany often finds herself stuck in the middle of two philosophies. On one hand, as a member of the defunct but immortalized all-female rock band, the Punk Cats, she is, along with the other cats, a poster child for the self-destructive punk rock lifestyle. But as a motivational speaker, she's less punk cat and more pussy cat, teaching traditional values in a modern society laced with debauchery. Terrifying Lies podcast will return after this short commercial break. Welcome back to the Terrifying Lies podcast. Patricia found her mother sitting in an ancient wingback chair that crouched in a living room nook. She didn't remember a time that the chair wasn't a part of her life. She was a little girl, the chair had scared her, and she had done whatever she could to avoid it. She'd plotted extravagant detours through back rooms to stay away from it, especially at night. As a child, she'd named the chair The Skeleton. She still called it The Skeleton, and it still set her nerves slightly on edge. But it wasn't The Skeleton that got to Patricia that day. It was her mother. Tina Gain sat in The Skeleton, her hands resting like dead birds on the wooden armrests. A sheen of damp covered her cheeks, stared at a broken piano that grinned back at her from the opposite side of the room. Patricia crouched down beside the skeleton. She reached out to touch her mother, but something stopped her. Her mother seemed unpresent, out of mind with her vacant stare. Patricia put a hand on her mother's arm. Tina didn't look away from the old piano. It's going to be okay, Patricia said. Wasn't that what one was expected to say, even when one knew that it was not going to be okay? Somehow, we'll get through this. Tina swallowed something invisible, then looked at her daughter through a pair of welled-up eyes. I don't know, honey. Things have been so bad for so long that I just... I don't know if it's possible for it to ever be okay. Patricia leaned over and rested a cheek on her mother's shoulder. She ran a hand through her mother's hair and even wiped away some of the tears with her palm. She expected her mother to respond by putting an arm around her. By saying something positive, even in dark times, her mother always found light. Her mother said nothing. She just stared at the piano. A fresh crop of tears filled her eyes. Her lids reached their breaking points and water spilled over her cheeks and dripped from her chin. Patricia kissed her on the cheek, tasting salt. She stood up and backed away from the skeleton and her mother and put a hand on the broken piano. She stood there for a moment unconsciously taking a picture with her mind of her mother sitting in the skeleton. That enduring picture would come to define Patricia as a woman and as a force with which to be reckoned. But for the time, she could only deal with navigating the moment. She left her mother in the living room and went upstairs to her bedroom. She picked up her bass guitar, an axe called an Amnesty Raven. She'd never heard of Amnesty brand guitars except for this one bass. 
She'd purchased the bass in a 30-watt solid-state practice amp at a garage sale a year ago in trade for her entire collection of troll dolls. The bass played like a 2x4 strung with barbed wire. At first, Patricia hadn't known the difference, but after visiting a guitar store in Des Moines on a seed-buying run, she'd learned that her Amnesty Raven was nothing to brag about. She'd taken down the bass guitars one at a time from the wall in the shop and played them. She'd plugged them into real amps with real power and learned what real bass guitars could do. After wrestling with the Raven for so long, it seemed the basses in the shop played themselves. She only had to tell her fingers how to behave. But she didn't have enough money for a decent bass guitar. She had to settle for playing the Raven, hawking and choking in tone action so bad that she often baked the muscles in her hands and forearms long before she wanted to put the instrument down. She plugged the raven in and turned on her little practice amp. Thing droned out, its constant back hum of dirty power. She played a riff she'd been working on, a punk thing that rode the roots. Nothing complicated, just a solid bass line with which nobody could argue. She stopped playing, turned her amp all the way up to its point of squelching bleed and went back to it. Usually, she could play out her aggressions. She could play out her uncertainties, her confusion, her lack of self-esteem, her anger, even her sadness. But this time, her Amnesty Raven, with all its lopsided playability, and her little apologetic amp couldn't remove her from reality. She stopped playing and threw the instrument on her bed. She punched the wall and tried to relish the pain in her knuckles. But the pain would only keep her from playing well later. She sat down on the bed, balled up her fists, put them on her knees. She stared at the floor for a while, trying to push it all out. The anger, the disappointment, the uncertainty. The bad water wouldn't slough off. She needed something more. She looked up at her favorite poster. Sean Yassault, the greatest female bass player in the world, rocked the stage with White Zombie, her blonde hair flying in a thrash of kinetic anger. Patricia stared at a rock and roll hero in thoughtful pause, balled up her fists even tighter on her knees. She stood up. I'm leaving, Sean. You hear me? I'm out of here, she said. The look in Sean's eyes seemed to validate her with a kind of distant approval. The front door of the farmhouse opened and closed downstairs. Patricia heard the familiar clomping of her father's boots as he came inside. Baby girl, come downstairs, Wendell shouted up from the landing. I need to have a word with you and your mother. Patricia ran a hand down the long neck of her amnesty raven. The instrument, in all its catch-penny worthlessness, beckoned to her. It wanted her to pick it up. It wanted her to play. If not play... It wanted her to destroy it by smashing it on the hardwood floor of a bedroom. Patricia resisted the instrument's call and left her room. She listened to whatever idiocy her father had to dole out. Ellie Glitter, vocals, member of the Punk Cats. 
Like most young vocalists nowadays, Ellie got her start on YouTube. She was the star of the Ellie and Wolfen show, in which she and their family's massive mastiff sat around and argued while watching TV. Her following peaked at five subscribers. From there, she became popular on Twitter with over 20 followers, 10 of which were not scam bots. She then leveraged that experience into a trending Instagram account and created a Vine account that ranked in the top 10,000 most watched accounts. Her Facebook following reached almost 100 at its most active, and then she topped it all off with a Snapchat audience of her family. Overnight, it all fell apart. She was only 16. One night, all alone while drowning her sorrows in green tea and California rolls at the Rock and Sushi Takeout, she got noticed by a local promoter who was putting together an all-girl act for a show the next day. And the rest is Punk Cat's history. <laughs> Patricia found her parents sitting across from each other at the chopping block kitchen table. Her father held one of her mother's hands. Tina stared at the worn grain in the table. Patricia could tell that not a word had passed between them since he had come inside. Have a seat, baby girl, her father said, gesturing toward one of the kitchen chairs. Patricia crossed the room and sat, keeping a firm hold on her bottom lip with her teeth. Wendell looked at each of his girls in turn with a pair of thoughtful glimpses. Patricia saw kindness in his eyes. She wondered what had gone wrong, what force had pried him away from his responsibilities as a guardian and provider. If there was still kindness there, why couldn't he express it with more than just a lasting gaze or a held hand? As you know, Wendell said, I've been very busy over the past couple of years in Silo 13. I know that I haven't permitted either of you to go into that particular storage unit. I want you to know that I have my reasons. What I have been doing is important, possibly the most important thing I've ever done in my life. The good news is, my work is finally complete. I'm ready to share the grand results with the two people who I most love in the whole universe. Wendell took Patricia's hand and squeezed it hard. Patricia winced. He'd chosen the hand that she'd used to punch the wall with in her room. Now's the time. Come with me. Wendell stood and drew Tina and Patricia with him. Three of them left the farmhouse. Wendell opened the rust-groaning passenger side door of his truck and helped Tina into the cab. Patricia stepped up into the truck and settled in beside her. Wendell closed the door. Patricia leaned against the glass, tracing a circle on the upholstery of the armrest as her father walked around the truck and mounted the driver's seat. He fired up the sputtering motor and they left the farmhouse. This has been The Beat Farmer, Part 1 of 2, written and performed by Craig Nibo. Want to know what the punk cats sound like? As part of Building the World for Chops, the rock and roll board game, I wrote a few songs on behalf of the musicians featured in the game. Among these songs are two by the Punk Cats. For today's song, I give you one of their biggest hits. It's called Step Off. Stay.
This has been the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Please, come again. You're welcome here. (laughs) 